You're listening to Open for Discussion, a University of Sydney podcast that discusses research through a personal and critical lens. I'm your host, Chris Neff. Most times we think of crime, it's after the fact. Whether as a victim or reading about it in the news, often it's not until a crime has been committed that people take notice. But what if we could prevent crime before it even happened? No, it's not a Tom Cruise movie. Simply the idea that through certain measures, the opportunity for crime may be removed. Joining me today on Open for Discussion is Dr. Ghana Clancy, a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Sydney Law School and an expert in crime prevention and crime statistics. Over the past 25 years, Ghana has worked with New South Wales Police, the Department of Juvenile Justice, and other government organizations on a number of crime prevention strategies. Thank you so much for joining us, Ghana. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. So can I start by asking a basic question? What what brought you to the research? What brought you to criminology? My pathway um, really started where I was studying psychology as an undergraduate student. Um, I fortuitously ended up working in the juvenile justice system and working in juvenile justice centers, which really fueled a passion to prevent crime. Working in a closed environment like a juvenile justice center suggested to me that um, there were better ways of preventing crime, reducing victimization, and preventing the degradation associated with being locked up in a total institution like a juvenile justice center. So not to simplify it, but how do we prevent crime? What what are some of the things that we can do differently than we're currently doing them in order to reduce crime rates? There are probably four key approaches to the prevention of crime, um, and I might just explain uh, a few aspects of each. The criminal justice system obviously seeks to prevent crime through policing practices, procedures in courts, and uh, corrections programs such as prison or community corrections. They are fairly blunt instruments in uh, the prevention space because obviously crime has occurred for those agencies to intervene. Situational crime prevention is about the reduction of opportunities for crime. So a lot of crime is episodic and not particularly well planned, unlike what you might believe from reading lots of crime novels. Uh, So if we can change the opportunity structure in our communities, in our facilities, in our environments, then we can actively prevent crime. Another approach is through trying to improve the social conditions. So it's probably no surprise that uh, having communities that are connected, well-bonded, uh, are likely to result in lower crime rates in those communities. And the, the final model is developmental crime prevention or early intervention. That means we intervene early in the life course or the history of, of a young person, a child, to try and give them the best um, upbringing, the best opportunity in life to succeed. So there's a lot of research that points to um, good quality preschool enrichment programs in early childhood environments that improve language acquisition and learning. These are the types of things that bear fruit in 15, 20 years down the course where people are uh, performing better in employment, education, and generally have better lives and less likely to be drawn into offending lifestyles. You've given me a lot there, and I've got a few questions, but it also sort of brought home the question of, so what is a crime? How how do you come to crime as a criminologist? That's a complicated question. Uh, in, in many respects, the easy answer is just to say, well, it's whatever the legislature decides is a crime. So lots of uh, behaviours are categorised as crimes in our various uh, statutes. 
But your point is uh, an important one that that really then determines or depends on what is brought to the parliament, what people are outraged by. So there are a whole variety of uh, behaviours that are criminalised that might affect particular communities more than other communities. In the Australian context, uh, offensive language, for example, is, is a, probably an archaic offence in many respects, given what we would read about or hear in, uh, on the TV or in comedy programs. Uh, but we know that Aboriginal communities, for example, are overrepresented in statistics on offensive conduct, offensive language, as a result of often he- um, more concentrated policing practices in those communities. So there's a real tension around how you define a crime and then what power effects those definitions have um, for people of particular backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, there are two examples that come to mind from my research. The first is that it used to be illegal to swim during the daylight hours until about 1902, and that was a significant offense, and you could be fined or you could be arrested by um, what was called a beach monitor at the time. And then the second one is homosexuality. I'm sort of gay as the sky is blue, and my citizenship and my existence would have been significantly affected in pre-1983 homosexual conduct laws. And so sort of this idea of what is a crime in the way that it evolves subjectively over time is socially constructed. Absolutely. And there's lots of debate in sort of socio-legal studies and, and critical legal scholarship around those questions that you've raised. I tend to focus on offences that uh, there's less dispute that that's a crime if they steal your motor vehicle or rob you. And they're the areas that I've tended to concentrate on. And in terms of that, I mean, you've obviously then looked at the prevention methods that you can do. And it sounds like it's gotten fairly evolved into behavioural behavioral insights and behavioral public policy to educate the public as well as deter criminals. Absolutely. Uh, And that notion of behavioral insights is an important one because we can learn a lot about how to prevent crime through the practices, the routine activities, the scripts that offenders use. What are they looking for? What are the easy opportunities? And if we understand that, then we can put in place measures that are often fairly inoffensive, to be honest, that can have quite positive and dramatic prevention outcomes. So my example about motor vehicle theft is a, is a classic one. We know that particular makes and models of vehicle uh, more easy to steal, but the newer vehicles with all of the security measures built in, the, the falls in motor vehicle theft in the last 15 years have been in the order of 75%. Uh, that's where I think prevention can be incredibly powerful because that's a simple measure that costs us very little, that there are no obvious trade-offs, and yet we have substantial positive benefits. Can I ask just for our listeners, um, what are the cars or what are the makes that are most likely to be susceptible to to some kind of crime? I, I feel that I need to be cautious now. Uh, I don't know who's listening. We don't have any criminals listening, uh, so you're, you're safe. Uh, I, could, I could say generally that if you owned a particular Hyundai that didn't cost you a great deal and it was made before 1993, that you're at greater risk of having it stolen. That is... Well taken. And um, moving on swiftly, um, can I ask about sort of some of these other things? We've got, you know, you have control orders, you have AVOs, you have uh, lockout laws. To what extent do those 
do those pieces contribute mm-hmm. to reducing crime in, in sort of the four different categories that you noted? Uh, domestic violence orders, uh, apprehend violence orders, control orders that are um, that basically seek to uh, modify people's movement. They are a, sort of part of a suite of measures that are probably fall on the more punitive end of the spectrum of prevention, where there's a direct impact on people's capacity to assemble, to move through time and space um, without being surveilled. If I just take the lockout laws as a bit of an example for a moment and, and talk to some elements of the, that kind of overall policy regime, the lockout laws have proven to be very successful in reducing crime in the area that the lockout laws were intended to impact, particularly King's Cross and parts of the Sydney CBD. So there's a degree to which the advocates of situational crime prevention would say that was a highly successful intervention. This is where crime prevention comes with trade-offs. The trade-off being that for a lot of people who want to socialise in the nighttime economy that is Sydney CBD or the King's Cross area, they feel aggrieved that venues are closing or they're being locked out. There are repercussions around workforce in those areas that are being put off because um, the pubs and clubs are no longer as successful as they once were. So there's a a real tension in some aspects of prevention, thinking about who are we seeking to prevent crime for, who are the victims or potential victims, and what are the the costs of um, preventing crime. So we can prevent crime, but it's not always advantageous to necessarily seek that as an objective. Ghana, can I ask you how how governments are able to balance personal freedom with crime prevention methods? It's an important question, Chris, and is a difficult one to respond to in that the trade-off for a lot of prevention activity is often greater surveillance, greater intrusion into the lives of particular groups in the community. So I think it's a good aspiration to seek to reduce and prevent crime, but not at all costs. So the expansion of powers for police, the expansion of powers for other government agencies that result in incredibly intrusive, coercive practices in the lives of marginalised and disadvantaged groups. So we need to be very careful about what we do in the name of prevention. So you're noting that incarceration may not be balanced with crime prevention. Incarceration, I I mean, this is sort of the story we always hear, you know, you sort of take a a petty criminal and you turn them into a hardened criminal by sending them to jail and then they get out and now you've got a bigger problem on your hands than you had before. Yes, absolutely. And because the, the penal state is expanding, the prison population in New South Wales has been growing rapidly in the last few years, quarter on quarter growth, uh, exceeded 13,000 adult prisoners for the first time ever recently. That means that you've got a whole lot of families who are affected. You've got a whole lot of employment prospects that are completely disrupted by virtue of imprisonment. You get very little, if any, returns in a prevention sense from imprisoning people. And you have some of the worst levels of recidivism in the country in New South Wales. So just to put that in context, only one in two people leaving prison today in New South Wales will return to prison within two years. Um, Wow. That's a... Given the big investment, it costs us over approximately $200 a day to incarcerate an adult in New South Wales. It costs us nearly $350,000 a year to incarcerate a juvenile in New South Wales. So there's a big investment, but not a great return on that investment. Um, So looking for alternative regimes, whether they're rehabilitation, whether they're employment-based, whether they're housing models, whether they're through care models that support people through the criminal justice system and beyond, Exploring those options rather than just focusing on um, 
detaining and incarcerating people and warehousing them in um, big prisons, I think needs to be part of the policy mix. Well, you would think there would have to be a 50% of your population is going to reoffend within two years. I mean, that's sort of enormously fast. Yes, and, and that's, mean, that's returning to prison. So that's um, reoffending re rates would be even higher because not everyone will return to prison within that time frame. So yes, there's absolute policy imperative to think about alternatives to imprisonment. You're listening to Open for Discussion, a University of Sydney podcast. I'm your host, Chris Neff, a lecturer in public policy with a particular interest in the role of emotions and policymaking. Today I'm talking crime prevention with Dr. Ghana Clancy. Is there a reason, I mean, you mentioned that there had been declines in crime rates in the United States, in Australia, and in the UK. Um, is there any data on what was the reason behind that? Like, is there is there something evidence-based that we can go off of? Not exactly. Uh, some criminologists have referred to this as criminology's dirty little secret. We don't actually understand why the declines occurred. There are various kind of working hypotheses. Some focus on opportunity reduction in a variety of ways, whether it's through improving security of our homes and our vehicles. Another hypothesis is if we prevent the opportunity to commit some of those lower order offences, if you like, then perhaps we reduce the opportunities for people to become more indoctrinated into a criminal milieu. So if a young person doesn't um, steal your car and then meets someone that they're selling the car to who then tells them that there are other opportunities if they steal more cars, then perhaps we're reducing the kind of pathway into more serious crime. That's one working model. Another is really focused on um, drugs and drug trends. So there seemed to have been a much closer relationship between the use of heroin and the offending for the purposes of funding drug habits. Whilst we've had all of this reporting and discussion about methamphetamine use, we haven't seen the same flow-on effect into other forms of criminality. So perhaps that's also part of the picture. The heroin drought in New South Wales seems to have um, occurred around 2000, 2001. And bottom line, people have said financial and economic conditions have been pretty positive over the last um, two decades. So perhaps that's also part of the picture that more people are uh, um, surviving without the need to resort to the, the illegal or informal economy. Can I ask about CCTV mm -hmm. and your thoughts on CCTV and whether or not it works and whether or not, um, you know, do people like it or, you know, or do they feel like it's more of a sophisticated big brother state or is it something that actually does reduce crime and creates safer communities? As is probably unsurprising, given, given that I work at a university, I'm going to give you a complex answer. CCTV, closed circuit television, um, is, is used in a variety of settings for the purposes of preventing crime. Where it appears to be most successful is entry and egress of a retail outlet. CCTV can be very effective in preventing crime. The data tends to suggest it's less effective in public places. There are ways to conceal behaviours. So a drug deal could take place right under a camera and it may not be witnessed or recognised as a drug deal. Then we have the issue of people who are intoxicated who are completely unaware of cameras, so it doesn't prevent their offending. So the, the best research that's been done on CCTV in public spaces say very modest at best returns on investment. And it can be quite an investment because the systems that are more likely to be effective are those that have 
continuous monitoring. So there is someone physically sitting there watching the cameras. And we've had generally a large crime decline in many of these areas in any case. So what's the point of running them to pick up one or two offences um, over the course of a weekend or a week? Kana. So to recap, lockout laws probably work and CCTV probably doesn't, um, which is shocking considering it's not like TV at all. No, it's far from what you see on TV. Um, there, there's just a host of issues that make these forms of technology difficult to to work. Well, this is very interesting. Okay. Are there any other crime statistics that you think we need to know about? Well, I think there's a, a number of trends that people just completely don't recognize, and that's largely about the crime decline. So the US crime decline started, it appears, around 1990, 91. In the UK, around 1995. In New South Wales, it seemed to begin at the end of the year 2000, around the beginning of 2001. And when I say falls, we're talking really substantial falls. So if I took burglary as an example, we were running at about 82,000 incidents of burglary per annum in New South Wales in the year 2000. Last year, that was approximately 32,000. We had 55,000 motor vehicles stolen in the year 2000. Last year, that was just over 12,000. Robbery has fallen um, even greater. Murder in New South Wales is uh, down to the lowest level it's been in 40 years just really widespread declines. But there are examples of offences that have bucked the trend. Domestic violence has been trending up and continues to trend up according to the most recent statistics. Fraud has been going up and the figures look bad, but when you dig into the figures, you find out that a lot of the frauds are relatively minor frauds. They're not the kind of... I've had my identity stolen three times in Sydney. Right. So I'm accounting... There's three statistics right there for you. And those three statistics, if a crook used your credit card multiple times, that ends up in multiple charges. So the increase in fraud looks quite dramatic, but perhaps um, isn't necessarily as alarming as it looks. But the increase in domestic violence, and we have had an increase in sexual assault as well in the last um, number of years, they're worrying and we need to come up with better and more effective prevention campaigns um, in those areas. To a certain, it's sort of what we were talking about when we started about social construction. I mean, the rate of anything is only the degree to which you're looking for it. We consider domestic violence in a much more holistic way than we do did 30 years ago when it was sort of private behavior in the home. So now that we consider it differently, we we count it differently, and and I think we should. And the same is true with sexual assaults. The same is true with you know, LGBT hate crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what aren't we counting that you think we should be counting? Is there anything? That's a good question. I, I might just say that when we think about burglary and motor vehicle theft, because people often say, well, isn't it just an artifact of reporting? Maybe we're less inclined to report those offences. The, the answer is absolutely no on those offences because of our insurance policies. We know that we have very high reporting of those crimes. Now, when you think about domestic violence, the reverse is true. We have very low reporting. So a real increase uh, in, in crime statistics, uh, it's, it's hard to determine whether that is actually an increase in the, the, the volume of domestic violence or it's because people are more prepared to report and police are more prepared to take this crime seriously. In terms of thing, other things that need to be counted, um, I'm often more interested in the, the, the other aspects of crime data rather than just the actual reporting. Um, I'm, I'm interested in crime mapping, so I'm particularly interested in how we understand the spatial temporal trends in crime. 
and often we don't get very good geographical inform information, which can be particularly important for a prevention point of view. Just again, to give you a, a kind of example, there's research that says if your home's broken into, the homes either side of you on the same side of the street are at elevated risk for the next month. Now, we know this through detailed analysis of um, spatial elements of uh, crime trends. Gathering that sort of information, I think, is really important. But when governments seek to kind of cut back on data collection, often we see compromises in the type of data that we end up um, collecting and therefore analysing. So that's an instance of statistics informing a public decision or policymaker and what, what have you that ends up being positive. Are there examples where statistics either aren't used properly or can tell us something completely different than what, what they really mean? Yes, many examples. Uh, I think an area that is really prone to kind of political and policy pressure and fluctuation is around policing of drugs. So people don't report that they observed a drug use. People don't report that they just use drugs. So the data is only ever um, collected when someone's apprehended and they're found in possession of drugs. That activity, that proactivity of police policing agencies is very much linked to kind of moral panics and concerns about particular drugs at particular times. So at the moment, the area where there's heightened concern, I suppose, across the community is methamphetamines or ice, which then perpetuates a, a narrative that we need more policing, we need more law enforcement because there is more of this crime. And the popular perception of methamphetamine use is, is pretty extreme, but there seems to be conflicting data. Uh, the policing agencies, some policing agencies might say that that's the case, but other um, health agencies uh, probably got a more sobering and modest uh, response that it possibly isn't as big a problem as is being made out, that we need to invest in treatment, not just in policing, because we need to develop new treatment methodologies that respond to methamphetamines. So there's a, a tension around how some of this um, reporting and how some of these crime statistics are used to perpetuate particular narratives that, uh, you know, either result in folk devils being created or moral panics being stimulated. So one of the things that I went, that sort of perpetuates these folk devils, uh, moral panics or whatnot is the media. Mm -hmm. Do you, has any of your work or would you have any thoughts on the media's contribution to this? I do. Uh, <laughs> my thoughts are that the media now, because we've been in a state of fairly significant falls in major crime categories, cherry pick the worst of the crime data. They look for stories that uh, confirm a narrative, that narrative being that w crime is out of control, we're all unsafe, which I, I would argue against. So they, they will look through the crime statistics when they're released and they'll find where there has been an increase and report those at the exclusion of commentary about the declines. So my frustration is that people, by and large, don't realise that we've had really, really significant falls in many crime categories um, by virtue of the, I think, skewed and cherry-picking type um, media coverage. Well, it sounds like whatever the issue is and whatever the reason is, I mean, especially if we know so little about what why crime goes up and goes down, then maybe we need to take a step back and be sure that we're being generous and kind to the people who are the victims of these crimes. Hey, hey. Well, I think that's very important. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ghana Clancy from the University of Sydney. Thanks, Chris. 
Thanks for joining us on Open for Discussion, a University of Sydney podcast. To hear more great stories, you can subscribe to iTunes or on SoundCloud. And if you'd like to know more about our research, be sure to visit our website, sydney.edu.au slash news.